The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We are fortunate to be alive at this moment in history. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The truth is plain to see. If you want freedom, take pride in your country. If you want democracy, hold on to your sovereignty. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin of The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We've got another great program. Good to be together. Lots happening. And uh, you're going to want to hear Katie McCoy in a few minutes. Uh, she wrote a piece over in town, uh, not townhall.com. That's our sister site, federalist.com. Great a young professor of theology at a Baptist seminary talking about Kamala Harris as the worst candidate for Christian women. Hmm. We'll see. She'll explain that to us. And then we'll also talk with John Schlafly, of course. The Schlafly Report is over at townhall.com. His pro- actually, his piece is on uh, the suburbs, and it's particularly this uh, canard that suburban women are voting against Trump. So it appears to be our uh, Women in Politics Day, even though I'm a dude. But here we are. So uh, let me get to what you need to know, because we got a busy show, and i got to keep it a little bit short here. Number one is follow this. And I've been saying this for a while. People don't believe me, but I'm right. And I was right in 2016. I'm right again. It's going to be a Trump landslide. Now, it's not going to be elect- It's not going to be a popular vote landslide. It's going to be an electoral college landslide. And uh, you're seeing it now starting to happen. You're seeing the land start to slide. The polls are sliding Trump's way. And I like to call this the Baden, the Baden, the Biden fade. The Biden fade. He's fading into his basement. He's fading into the background. He's fading into Kamala Harris's presidency. Joe Biden is fading and the polls are getting closer for two reasons. One, the pollsters have to make them closer because they've been lies and they don't want to look like they're uh, fools because they got to get hired again after and they want to make it look like it's close. The second is they want it to be a horse race because they want you to think you want to watch when in fact it's going to be a Trump landslide. He's going to win all the states he won last time. He's got to pick up New Mexico, New Hampshire, a few other places. And don't get me wrong, 45% of the country, 43% of the country are voting against Trump. And, but there's a whole bunch that aren't, and you're seeing it. But you're, more importantly, watch the trend of what you're seeing. The pollsters are now talking about tightening. They're talking about how certain places are out of reach now. And you're just watching this uh, go that direction. So here's the biggest reason, what you need to know, why Biden can't win. He can't win and he won't win is because he gave a he did a podcast yesterday. He can't even do regular media. He did a podcast uh, and he actually said that America was never great. He said America was never great. It was never great. Now, think about a presidential candidate, no matter what, when you say we can always do better and all that. He said it was never great in this podcast. And now, how can you run the end of your campaign with the notion that America was never great? In fact, he went on to tweet about it to clarify it because it was an interview. So he's trying to he doubles down on it. He says America was an idea and we've never lived up to it, but we've walked We've never walked away from it before. That's not what he said. He actually said America was never great. 
And that's that's a, just a terrible, terrible message, which just goes to show. I mean, he's got a, he's a, he doesn't have a good campaign, doesn't have a real message. The message "I'm not Trump" is only strong enough to get you so far. So watch that the Biden fade, Biden fade as it goes, and. Um, One last comment I want to make sure not to let slip by uh, because it is huge news and we're covering lots of other topics so quickly things move. Today, uh, earlier, excuse me, earlier today, earlier Thursday, Thursday uh, at 11 a.m. is when I would say it happened. The Democrats gave up on Amy Coney Barrett. Judge Barrett was voted out of the Judiciary Committee and the Democrats didn't even try. With Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, they, they, they allowed the hearings to go forward. Then they tried this Hail Mary stuff and they got the media to help him and they tried to smear him and they almost won. They almost got him to withdraw. With Amy Coney Barrett, the polling shows she's more popular today with Democrats and independents than she was a week ago. She's totally smart, totally talented, totally capable. And so instead of uh, uh, trying a fight, trying to fight, the, the Democrats didn't show up at the Judiciary Committee. They just didn't show up. And now, because of what's going on, the vote to confirm her will be Monday, not next Thursday. It's supposed to be next Thursday, the 29th, but there's no resistance, so it's just going to be Monday. And the real reason, what you need to know, that there's no resistance is because they don't know how to resist. It doesn't cost them votes. Because in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, New Hampshire, Ohio, places, uh, Florida, there's lots of voters, Catholic voters, young women voters that are looking up and they're saying, what what are you going to do to her? Why are you going to beat her up? For being successful and smart and decent, that doesn't make any sense to us. So it's an extraordinary uh, failure by the Democrats to mount even a credible argument. They're not even making an argument, which just goes to show, salute one more time, salute and and, uh, gratitude to Mitch McConnell and President Trump for uh, getting the nomination going forward, managing all the details. Uh, It is an extraordinary success. It's an extraordinary success. And think of this. By Monday, next Monday, the 26th of October, at about four in the afternoon, Amy Coney Barrett will be sworn in. And she will then be on the court, able to vote on all these important election decisions that are going to come racing towards the court. Like whether they can count ballots afterwards and whether they can do this and do that and do their games. And now the majority is six to three, even if you think it's five, three and one because you can't trust Chief Justice Roberts. That's pretty good. Dramatic change. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk with John Schlafly, then Katie McCoy, and a lot more. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to talk with John Schlafly. The Schlafly Report goes up on townhall.com each Tuesday, late afternoon, early evening. Go to townhall.com. John and Andy Schlafly continue their mother's tradition, uh, weekly column, the Schlafly Report. This week's column entitled, Honey, It's Time to Vote for Trump. And uh, it posted on Tuesday night and also over at phyllisschlafly.com. You can find all of uh, John and Andy's columns are archived there. But John, just uh, earlier today, uh, Donald Trump tweeted, Finally, suburban women women are flocking over to us. They realize that I'm saving the suburbs, the American dream. I terminated the regulation that would bring projects and crime to suburbia. Not on my watch. Biden Biden will bring back the regulation, bring the regulation back, but bigger and worse. And here's the thing, John. It looks like the 60 Minutes uh, interview with Leslie Stahl was terminated by uh, uh, Trump in part because she quoted back to him the line where he said to the public uh, at one of his rallies, suburban women, please vote for me. Or he's, And she said, you know, you're begging voters. And he said, I was being sarcastic. So first of all, John, do you believe 
that uh, President Trump has a problem with voters in the suburbs, whether women or men? Do you think that's right, or do you think the polls are off? What's your thoughts on it? Well, Ed, I think to uh, focus on the uh, suburbs is silly and really a waste of time. Uh, uh, I don't think suburbs per se uh, is particularly important in terms of politics or Trump. I mean, the, 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 the media is doing anything, I think, to uh, uh, try to be negative about Trump in the last week before the election. And especially, you know, women, uh, you know, the real divide for women, of course, in the vote is the married women, married. Uh, right. That's the distinction. Uh, and, and sure, uh, not suburban women, and yet uh the media is going on polls are trying to say Trump has a problem with suburban women. Uh, so the 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 uh, women's vote has been uh, an issue for Republicans. The so-called gender gap goes back to Reagan, if not earlier. Uh, uh, but um, uh, so to focus on suburban women, I don't really see the point of that. Trump, as you say, kind of launched back at that today in regard to his uh, uh, mentioning the fact that he terminated uh, one of Obama's regulations, which would have required local government to essentially permit low-income housing in, um, in everywhere. Uh, and and right. encourage it through federal spending, and uh, Trump put an end to that. That was considered to be an attack on the suburbs, and in a way it is. Uh, but, John, you know, one thing that what you're saying here is I, what, I, what I don't understand is uh, um, what, would the, what would the issue sort of framework be on so-called suburban voters, right? What they really probably mean are more educated, right? Aren't suburban voters – aren't we saying something in a kind of trick way about more likely to be, say, have, have some college – I know there's a distinction between college graduates and have some college uh, uh, education, you know, that it seems like if you go to a semester or more of college, you're, you're likely to be – in a different so, uh, economic uh, earning bracket, but it's kind of as you say, it's the the, the breakup, uh, the, the breakdown of this is more uh, mar- married women as opposed to single w- women uh, or divorced women. I suppose. I mean, again, you could start to carve this up, but what do people living outside of the cities care about? It feels to me like they care about not having whatever Antifa and Black Lives Matter are doing spread to their neighborhood, isn't it? And now, because of the pandemic, schools—the fact that the schools can't get their together. Those seem to me to be the two biggest issues. I don't see why Biden gets the uh, I- the policy advantage or the political advantage on those two issues. No, I don't. And, you know, the, the idea of the suburbs perhaps meant something 50 years ago. But today, I mean, most of most Americans live in what are called suburban areas. So it's not right. really doesn't really mean that much anymore. And uh, so I don't think um uh, you know suburban women well you know why not women in general i don't think suburban right. women are a particularly uh demographic or particular demographic group uh particularly 
Well, and that brings me to the other question, John, is you want to talk about women and women looking up and seeing something. Uh, doesn't the Amy Coney Barrett, the the Judge Barrett nomination, I mean, again, it, I know uh, there's a certain set of issue voters, and I was reading, we're talking with John Schlafly, the Schlafly Report is the continuing uh, weekly column that Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly wrote. I was reading about her writings on single-issue voters and how the media and others like to say, oh, single-issue voters are not, you know, not uh, not sophisticated or they're, they're only because they're one-issue voters. They're sort of uh, one-track mind. And she, her point in the essay I read was, well, they, they actually move the debate. And if that issue that they care about is important enough to a big enough group, it has an impact. It, you know, it feels to me like um, Amy Coney Barrett put aside the one-issue voters, single-issue voters on abortion. The country just got to look at a very bright, very attractive, very balanced uh, woman who was Trump's pick. I, you know, you'd think, that you'd think in a certain sense, even, and the polling, by the way, reflects that. That the Democrats uh, and independents all had a had a dramatic increase in support for Barrett after her uh, the the process where she got some attention feels like that would be more likely to shape impressions of voters uh, more than I don't know what, what CNN saying but I I guess inside this what what other issues and what's your, what's your essay saying in terms of where these voters will end up? Uh, well. The- uh, part of the, what we were trying to say is that uh, you know uh, married women tend to vote with their husbands because there's a sense that you know after all marriage is a partnership people uh, uh, and uh, the, the notion that uh, uh, um, uh, women in particular have a voting uh, as a, as a demographic group, vote contrary to their husbands. I don't think there is much uh, basis for that, and so there is a distinction between unmarried women. Yes, uh, that's a demographic group, but um, uh, you know, typically we found. First of all, if you look at Trump rallies, uh, I mean, there are as many women as men there, um, and uh, you know, I do think that. Uh, Women had a chance to see uh, Judge Barrett, who is uh, has uh, the type of woman that Trump has picked. I mean, she is a she is a woman who you might say has it all, and who's able to accomplish so much in her life and her home life, as well as her professional life. And you compare her, for example, to one of the the female senators who questioned her. Uh, like Kamala Harris, and you know, I think the difference is stark, uh, and appeared that way to women too. Well, and and uh, John, we're talking with John Schlafly again. I, I guess the question I have, the, the, you know, back to this piece that you wrote, "Honey, it's time to vote for Trump." Uh, you know, I do know. I, I was going to tell you, my brother, the Marine, retired Marine, he told me the other day his wife is uh, never was for Trump in '16 North now, and he is, and says they don't even talk about it. So I, I hate to blow that that uh, that piece of that. Now that may be pretty unique, but the the again the the question in my mind too, and this is um, John Schla- John Andy Schlafly's column, "Honey, it's time to vote for Trump." Is 
Do we see any I, 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 do we see any intensity, voter intensity for the assertion that, you know, suburban women are breaking from Trump? I mean, again, elections are about putting together the groups that vote in a certain way. I, I just don't see it. I know there's the angry feminist sort of group, but they look like single women or or others. Um, I just don't I don't see the evidence of what they're saying. Did you see in your in your review in this essay any any real evidence uh, in the polling or otherwise, it seems to think or is the, are the polling is the polling just fake polls like they've been on most of the subjects? Uh, well, polls uh, usually have demographic questions about and they certainly include uh, race, sex, age and uh, level of uh, education and uh, basic questions like that. But uh, suburban women, I, ju- I just don't see any significance to that because the people who talk about suburban women uh, do not uh, make it clear what that really means, what was the, would be the basis for that. I don't think there is any basis for suburban women as a group, as a class, having a defined uh, set of views or background for that. Uh, married or single, yes, that makes a big difference. Um, a level of income, union household, uh, gun in the household, uh, and other questions that pollsters ask. But suburban, what does that even mean? these days what is what is suburban that's not even clear what that even means yeah exactly i it seems to me uh the whole thing is kind of a a a, a um you know a, a they're searching they're searching for an advantage to describe when i'm not sure it's there all right john schlafly um the uh column again is the is the schlafly report posted over at townhall.com this week's honey it's time to vote for trump and also archived over at com. thank you john for the time we'll talk again next week and we'll take a quick break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest, uh, Katie McCoy, she's been on with us before. It's been a while, too long, but she is an assistant professor of theology and women's studies at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Texas. She's uh, on Twitter at Blonde Orthodoxy, Blonde Orthodoxy, a good Twitter feed. And she has a recent article, and Katie, I have to tell you, the funny thing is we were getting your dad and I, your father, who's a pastor, a friend of mine, uh, was mentioning you in this piece that's running in thefederalist.com. The title is... uh, the title is Why Kamala Harris is the Worst Candidate for Christian Women. And in, unbeknownst to me or him, one of my Eagle leaders uh, sent me this and said, you got li- you got to read this piece by this woman. Check this out. And so it's been passed around and folks are reading it. So uh, welcome, Katie. And let me ask you, tell me, you know, give me the summary of your piece. Why is Kamala Harris the worst candidate for Christian women? Ed, thanks so much for having me and sharing this with your your listeners. You know, Kamala Harris, uh, I think she represents so much that women wish that they could get behind. Here is this ethnic minority woman, um, vice presidential candidate. She's someone who we, we should be able to be very excited about. But one of the things that happens on the left is you very quickly realize that uh, it really doesn't have room for all women. Not really, uh, especially not women that don't toe the party line on things like abortion and gender issues. And Kamala Harris really represents not just a progressive ideology and agenda, but one that uh, really ends up being very anti-woman, especially when you look at some of the legislation that she has co-sponsored in the Senate, like the Equality Act and um, other legislation that she, she wants to see enacted that would not only hurt free speech, 
Um, but ultimately, especially when you look at the transgender movement and its politicization, it ends up really hurting women. It ends up uh, being, frankly, one of the most patriarchal things that you might see in, in society today is, is men telling women the limits of what it means to be a woman and defining it for themselves. So um, I wish I could be as excited as others are about Kamala Harris and what she represents. But unfortunately, her policies get in the way of that. So um, in this case, you know, I don't know if you saw there's a piece. I think it was during the World Series game the other night. I can't remember for sure, but um, somewhere they were running it. And um, they were uh, they were showing the. they were showing uh, all these women, right? And they were saying, look at women uh, that, that are, are girls that can look up to Kamala Harris. Almost like she was the president, by the way, which is another thing to mm-hmm. uh, to wonder about. Um, but here's the thing. In in America, you, you I know people vote for the person, but you're stuck with the party. And, you know, the, the thing I would say, and we're talking with Katie McCoy uh, and Katie's uh, piece, which I'll put up on social media, uh, is running in the Federalist.com. Um, but, Katie, you know, uh, the the Democrat Party has moved so dramatically towards uh, a place where they're against the values of a whole lot of Americans, not just American women, but American women, too, and especially Christians, whether it's um, the desire to control and limit uh, free exercise religion. All these uh, lockdowns have been like that. The changing of our schools, as you mentioned, transgender athletes, uh, abortion on demand. You know, there's a the sexualization of the culture. The Democrat Party has moved away and you can't sort of step away from that, even if you like the idea of a woman candidate. Well, that's absolutely right. And as you said, uh, the person you may like or dislike the person, but you end up getting the party platform. And I think that applies, too, for the Republican Party as well, as people are considering really what is this binary choice in this election. Um, You mentioned some of the policies that the Biden-Harris administration would uphold. One of the most um, horrific ones, no matter how the media may try to sanitize the language of it, is uh, the fact that in our country, we could not get a law passed that would protect and ensure the medical treatment of infants born after an abortion, like who survived an abortion. And Harris voted against the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. It's, it's barbaric. And no matter how, uh, how winsome she may be on camera, how fun she may be with the millennials and the Gen Z, if you're going to actually look at the substance and direction that a political party is going to take a nation, we cannot get around these ethical issues, these moral issues, and um, the the legislation that it would help usher in as well. You mentioned religious liberty. That's something that uh, I I hope and pray more people more people would sound the alarm on, so that we're not asleep at the wheel. There are things happening in the country today that I I just I can't believe I can't believe that I'm in America reading some of these headlines. Um, and it really does represent a very consistent ideology, one that uh, is anti-family, anti-church, anti-religion, and use those factors of society as the enemy of, of this so-called equality. And this equality that, of course, as you know, ends up just um, really becoming the oppressor itself as it defines defines things like what is fair, what is true, what is right, and uh, and punishing those who do not fall in line. 
The uh, we're talking with uh, Katie McCoy, and uh, she's professor at uh, assistant professor of theology and women's study at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Katie, I'm and follow her at Twitter at Blonde Orthodoxy. This question I could get in trouble how I ask it, but I'm going to try. <laughs> <clears throat> Kamala Harris is a woman who had no children. Has no children of her own. I think she has some stepchildren. Um, married late, relatively late in her life. Um, her husband, I think it's his second wife or third wife. Um, I don't know if she was married before. I don't think so. But she doesn't have a normal, uh, and I, again, this is where I get in trouble, experience of American motherhood and um, spouse uh, and wife. Does it matter? That's a thoughtful question. I think uh, if she's going to try to represent Housewives of America, then she should at least be empathetic to the things that they're really concerned about. Um, and, and I also think about other women. I think, well, on the other side of the spectrum, you've got a lot of women who not married, don't have children, and they're they're serving God in ministry, and they're, they're giving their lives to something that is greater than themselves. So I think in one hand, it's the motive of it, is, is how do you want to right. take perhaps the, the other things that aren't on your plate but other women may have and, and use your life to serve them. On the other hand, um, it's, it's, a, it's a true thing to say that she can't really necessarily claim to understand empathetically or at least experientially um, a lot of the concerns of women. And I think that's, that's something that you see uh, typified in the fact that so many Democrats um, have they have they condemned the violence that we're seeing? I can't keep up. I can't keep up with what the latest line is. But uh, right. you, know, you have you have the average American wife and mom looking at what's happening on the news, and it's absolutely terrifying. And wondering if the the violence of Portland is going to end up making it to their metroplex. And and yep. I think the fact that that we're not seeing a a resounding condemnation of these things just shows how out of touch they really are. Yeah, it's an interesting question because you got to be careful how you ask it. But I I do think that um you know and and similarly by the way you could do it you could reverse the field on this question and say Amy Coney Barrett um she had five of she's had five children herself her and her husband and adopted two children including one of her five as I learned only recently is um, with some you know some uh, issues uh, some health issues mm-hmm. um but and for some people they look up and say seven children I mean you know how how can someone do that I mean you know it's almost you you sort of heard that alluded to. Of course, that brings up the idea and the notion and the important one to say is that every American person, but especially women, can find the life that they want to lead, right? Within that, some are, some have children, some don't, and all the rest. But it is an, it is an interesting uh, question to think about these uh, very prominent public um, uh, women. What was the reaction to your piece on thefederalist.com? I mean, you're a professor of theology. You're at a theological mm-hmm. institute. You're writing a piece on the Federalist uh, that's more political. Do you get a lot of blowback? Do you get a lot of encouragement? What's the reaction? Um, generally very positive feedback. Uh, I'll tell you where I got some of the, the, the greater vitriol. You brought up Amy Coney Barrett at her, uh, the announcement that President Trump had nominated her to the Supreme Court. I observed that Amy Coney Barrett really represents everything that the feminist movement said they wanted. They said that they wanted women to have uh, a life where they didn't have to choose between having a family and having a career. Um, women wanted husbands who were supportive of their professional endeavors. Uh, women uh-huh. wanted to uh, be able to uh, excel in their careers as well. And now here she is 
nominated to one of the greatest halls of power. And yet what you saw was a shameful everything from her religion to uh people commenting on all of a sudden feminists were so concerned with women being in the home i mean that's a new one so uh it was just so ironic and really when it comes right down to it it comes down to abortion people have tried to talk me out of it say that it's about some other policy issues um i i'll i'll concede a little bit of that but i think it really is about the issue of abortion amy coney barrett is pro-life and um politically true feminism is a political movement and it really doesn't have room for pro-life women uh so thankfully the federalist piece has gotten a lot of good a lot of good traction but i'll tell you what i got some of the nastiest comments on twitter about amy coney barrett Huh. It's um, uh, one last question. We're talking with Katie McCoy. Her piece is over at thefederalist.com. Why Kamala Harris is the worst candidate for Christian women. Katie, um, since 2016 till today, you know, when you when uh, Donald Trump was running in 2016, I remember talking to people like your father and others who were come out of the evangelical church and the and the and the come out of the Baptist church and the strong uh, religious background. And, and he, I think, was never, never wavered on Trump. But others did. They said, you know, I don't know. If I trust this guy, New Yorker. Four years later, it feels to me like there's plenty to trust. Have you seen any um, can you describe whether there's amongst conservative Christians, if there are believers, Christians, strongly religious Christians, more Trump support, less? Are they tired of him? What's your feeling as we get closer to the election? Well, that's a great question. I think I think in all aspects of uh, the Christian vote and Trump, I think you see both for and against him are believers trying very sincerely to be consistent between their theology and their practice. And in that, I can only uh, support and and uh, just say yes and amen. That's exactly how it should be. Uh, I think I think truly, as especially as Baptists, in my Baptist context, we should support someone's um, conviction of conscience in, in their vote. But at the same time, I think uh, choosing not to like the Republican Democrat, or excuse me, the Republican candidate is very different than saying you're going to support a candidate who would um, enshrine abortion legislation uh, to the point that if we had an overturning of Roe, that he would make it a law. And that's just on one on one issue. What I'm seeing, frankly, Ed, among evangelicals is um, almost a a magnification of some of what we saw in 2016, it's not that uh, they may necessarily be supportive of the person, President Trump, but they really right. like a lot of his policies. Um, and and it's like what you said, it's the difference between a person and a policy or a person and a platform. And um, I think it's it's one of those opportunities where people are, are taking a step back and saying, okay, what is this actually going to look like in terms of religious liberty? And then also uh, pro-life judges, pro-life legislation. Um, and then there's also very sincere believers who are saying, look, it doesn't really matter that much about a president. I, I don't buy that. I really don't. I think it does matter quite a bit, uh, if anything, for the judicial appointments. Um, so it's, it's all across the board. Unfortunately, I think it's probably that the divide is even more entrenched. And uh, that's probably hmm. what we're seeing more than anything. Hmm. All right, Katie McCoy, thank you for your time. I got to run. Katie McCoy, the piece is up at federalist.com. We'll put it there, post it up there, and uh, we appreciate your insight very much. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Ed. Great to be with you. 
Good to be with you. And Katie, well, these interviews, these ones, you got to go back and listen again. She's got so much insight. Remember, you go to ProAmericaReport.com. We post them all up there as standalone links so you can get them. ProAmericaReport.com. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast delivering a conservative pro-family perspective since 1983. As an author, speaker, and the founder of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Mrs. Schlafly spent an astounding 70 years in public service, protecting and defending the Constitution, the unborn, and America's sovereignty. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. This election season is a good time to appreciate how special, how exceptional, how superior our American system of government really is. Unlike most other nations, the United States has presidential elections at fixed times established by law, rather than at a time chosen by the politicians in power. In England, Canada, and many parliamentary systems, the political leader decides when to hold the next election. He picks a time that is most advantageous for his re-election. But in the United States, election day for our president is on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November in every year divisible by four. By using a fixed day, the odds are that this will be disadvantageous to the incumbent roughly 50% of the time. Our Constitution limits political power in another essential way, with a strict separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. In the parliamentary system in England, the leader of the executive branch is a member of parliament, and so are his cabinet members. But in the United States, there is supposed to be almost no overlap in jobs or activities of the different branches. This separation of powers gives us the checks and balances that are unique to the U.S. Constitution. Each branch, to protect its own power, acts to limit expansions by the other branches. Our founders expected the legislative branch, Congress, to be the most powerful, more powerful than the presidency and the judiciary. Unfortunately, Congress has ceded much of its power to the president and the courts. Since the president appoints justices of the Supreme Court, remember that presidential elections now carry even more significance than ever before. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report and uh, great interviews with John Schlafly and Katie McCoy. Don't forget, please go over to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there for the daily emails and also get any of these individual standalone segments. You can email them around and pass them on to others. Um, okay, a couple of things to follow up on. Uh, number one, I do want to cover, excuse me, more specifically uh, the... Um, 
the uh, details of um, the Joe Biden's answer on court packing. So Joe Biden's answer on court packing was that he would not court pack. That wasn't something he would want to do. Supposedly, he didn't like the idea, supposedly, but he wouldn't say for sure until after the election. And so he um, he said, let me um, tell you after the election. Well, it must have gotten, and I think this is clear, to be too big a problem for him. So he decided uh, yesterday or the day before to float the idea that it would be good to have a bipartisan commission appointed by the president, take six months, and then come up with recommendations on packing the court or not. Now, you, I have to admit, this is a good swamp answer. If you're in, in um, the, the swamp for 47 years in the U.S. Senate and as vice president, you know, this is a perfect answer. You appoint a blue ribbon panel. Made, you will get to appoint them. So everybody that goes on there is there because of you. It's not like you give the uh, people of the country a chance to pick someone. You do it yourself. So you load it with people you want. You tell them, you know, I want you to go out and for six months, you're going to hear testimony and talk about it and persuade the public on the position we should take. And then after that's done, if you get them to be persuaded, we'll be in good shape. If not, I won't do it anyway. So it's kind of the perfect cover your tail move uh, by uh, by Joe Biden. On the other hand, it's exactly what people expect of the swamp. Right. So it just sounds like the swamp. It just is the swamp. Nobody's impressed by that. That's not exactly a profile in courage, a blue ribbon commission. In fact, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, whenever I back when I was chief of staff to the governor of Missouri, we had this contentious problem of um, tax credits. Um, uh, they were they were transferable tax credits. So they could be they could be for low income housing. They could be um, tra- sold on the open market. And they were. And so there was this sort of industry that built around it and we didn't really know what to do but we knew we had to do something because it was sort of it had become so corrupt or um, at least had the appearance of corruption that's a better way to say it so we formed a blue ribbon commission and we put on there members of the house and members of the senate state level and a few other people and we said now go look at this and we'll figure out some way to give us cover what to do now that one blew up because of politics it didn't actually last very long because nobody wanted to actually do anything but my point is there is a long tradition of of blue ribbon commissions put in place to just do exactly either bury something or get it done with cover. And I, I'll be fair about that. It could be this is the way Biden wants to bury it, but it doesn't feel like it. And he followed up in the 60 Minutes interview. He said, yeah, we got to do something. So I don't, I'm not sure it's a way to bury it. So it's a way to kick it down past the election. All right. Um, now, the president has also escalated his fight. That that clip from Joe Biden came out of a 60-minute interview, 60 Minutes, the, the television magazine show that he did um, – I think he did. Joe Biden did this week. And President Trump sat down with a similar one, um, a similar uh, uh, 60 Minutes interview with Leslie Stahl. And for whatever reason, halfway through the conversation or actually most of the conversation took place, but there was supposed to be another um, walk around or something. He left and he had recorded it. Um, and so he was able to post the video, which he did, and shows how, you know, of uh, they were only talking about things that were negative um, to Trump. They were, you know, going back and forth on Q, uh, back and forth on, on COVID. And he just got sick of it. He walked away and then he posted the video. Here's the funny thing about this. Um, the... Um, 
the video that he posted, plus all the talk, will probably make the 60 Minutes interview with Leslie Stahl one of the highest watches, watched uh, 60 Minutes in a long time. It almost guarantees um, the, uh, the, uh, that it will be watched a lot, which again, um, the, uh, the, the reality is more attention is generally better right? Especially on 60 Minutes. That's not Fox News. That's a different crowd. And so he'll get enough, people will get another look at him. And he always he does know what he's talking about. He always knows what he's talking about. I guess the thing that he was, um, uh, he was um, annoyed with her about is that she took his words from one of his, um, his uh, um, rallies where he was kind of saying, oh, they keep telling me suburban women are leaving. And now I ask, please like me. And she played it back. And he was like, look, I was joking. You know, one of these rallies, and she didn't she didn't play along at all. And so so and, and then she brought up the a Whitmer rally where people started chanting lock her up. And so anyway, he got sick of it. But my point here and tell talking about it is he was able to get tons of attention on his interview and people will give it tons more when it airs either next this coming weekend or next weekend. So um, in some ways, pretty effective way to get more attention on an issue uh, that um, people um that people uh, uh, might not have been watching. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we'll see what the the, uh, the ratings on uh, the um, uh, on the uh, uh, on the sixty minutes will be. It'll be fun to watch. All right, that's all we've got. I want to say thank you. This time it's Randy, our great uh, technical director, filling in for Noah. Noah's on vacation. Uh, Joanna for helping book our guests. And please be reminded: go over to uh, ProAmericaReport.com proamericareport.com and uh, check in there all these interviews all these links to the program and also you can sign up for the daily wink over there and i look forward to talking to you again tomorrow it's ed martin here on the pro america report talk to you tomorrow